0: Well, good morning, everyone. It's a pleasure for me to be able to preach the word to you today. I am not Pastor Mike, if you hadn't figured that out already. He is on vacation, and uh, it really is a privilege to be able to preach. There's so many capable preachers in our church. So many of the elders are so good at it. Uh, to even be uh, considered really is an honor, and I, and I look forward to it. I know uh, we all look forward to when Mike is on vacation or sick. Uh, I myself have been uh, guilty of praying for a, a delayed flight. And, and I'm hoping to I'm hoping to carve a niche for myself as preaching uh, in sort of the off holidays. Mike reserves you know the juiciest ones for himself, Christmas and Easter and Thanksgiving. I'm hoping you know New Year's Day, maybe Arbor Day. I think that would be a good a good little spot for me. But uh, go ahead and open your Bibles up to the Book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter two. We're actually going to just continue on from uh, where I was last time. If you if you happen to be here the last time I preached, and we're, I thought it would be fun to finish out the chapter the previous chapter uh, the previous section was about salvation how salvation is by grace through faith and today we're talking about unity in the church so if you would stand with me and we're going to read ephesians chapter 2 starting in verse 11 and we're going to go through the end of the chapter so it's kind of a beastly paragraph we're looking at read along with me ephesians chapter 2 starting in verse 11 i'm reading from the esv this morning Being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Father, we thank you for bringing us to church this morning. I pray that your word would convict our hearts, that we would become more like Christ through hearing it, and that we would truly worship you this morning. Father, we love you, and we pray this in your name. Amen. Maybe seated. The theme of the passage today is unity and peace. Both of those are prevailing throughout it. And the main idea or or the, the first idea is that we can have, as Christians, as believers, through what Christ accomplished, we are able to have peace and unity with God. That is what happens first, and that is really the sort of peace and unity that we need more than anything else. But the main idea of this passage builds on that first idea and talks about how because of what Christ did we were able to have unity and peace with each other in the church and so that's what we're going to see unity and peace and this was a very big deal for the early church because there were two groups of people within the church that were in desperate need of peace between them and that was Jews and Gentiles Jews were the chosen people of God. They were Israelites. They were part of God's chosen people. And Gentiles were essentially anyone else. Anyone who was not a Jew was a Gentile. And these two groups of people got along in ways that I think the modern church can't really understand. There was so much animosity between them. There were just years of festering hatred that the idea that they could come together and worship God in unity was a mind-blowing idea, and the church struggled with it. The early church, the problem of unity in the church was always between Jews and Gentiles. And the reason was because of this long-standing relationship that they had. Jews in general were happy to see Gentiles be judged rather than forgiven, You see this most notably with Jonah, who is upset he doesn't want to go to Nineveh because he knows that God is gracious. He knows that God will forgive the city, and so he rebels. He runs away knowing that he would rather see Nineveh be judged than forgiven. Many Jewish people thought of Gentiles as simply fuel for hell and that God loved Israel and literally hated every other country. This was the prevailing ideology of Jews toward Gentiles, and this had practical apl- applications. Women, Jewish women, would, not, would typically not help Gentile women who were pregnant, who were giving birth, because they didn't want to be responsible for bringing another despised Gentile into the world. Jews, as they were, if they had ventured outside of Palestine, as they were coming back in, they would shake the dust off their feet, as they entered in, the idea that they didn't want to soil the, the Holy Land. They didn't want to contaminate the Holy Land with Gentile dust. That's how much they hated them. Samaria was a, a region filled with half-Jewish people, and Jews would go well out of their way in, to, in order to avoid going through that area. They didn't want anything to do with it. Most notable, I think, is that if a Jewish man or woman decided to marry a Gentile, his family would typically throw a funeral mourning the death of their son. It's one thing to simply disown a family, but to go through the, the ceremony of a funeral in order to drive the point home that, that your child is dead to you is serious hatred. Jews wouldn't allow Gentiles in their home, and they wouldn't dare go into a Gentile home. And this is the sort of relationship that they had before Christ. And now suddenly these two groups of people are meant to coexist in the church, and it created problems. It created many problems. And we see throughout the epistles and acts also, we see the church trying to deal with these problems. There were questions of whether or not Gentiles needed to keep up with the law, whether they needed to be circumcised. In in Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council is convened specifically to deal with Jewish and Gentile relations. And famously in Galatians chapter 2, Paul confronts Peter, or talks about how he confronted Peter. The apostle Peter, he says, because he stood condemned. And the reason was how Peter was interacting with Jews and Gentiles. This was a very serious issue of people within the church just completely and totally not getting along. They hated each other. And But they were meant, Paul's going to write here, they were meant to be unified. And he explains that. And so Paul is going to give three descriptions of the church. That's what we're going to see in the passage. Three descriptions so that the body of Christ would experience true unity as they worship. And so the first description of the church that we're going to see is that they were previously alienated. Before Christ came and accomplished his atoning work, the church, and this is specifically talking about Gentiles here, which is us, we, you know, we ourselves are Gentiles, that they were alienated from God. And these, you see it in the first two verses, and these are kind of downer verses. We're going to get through them eventually, but there is not, there aren't, there aren't going to be a lot of smiles to be had throughout the next two verses. Because the point is to demonstrate how far they were from God, how much they needed Christ, and how seriously they had offended God. And so we see two types of alienation of the Gentiles before Christ is they were physically alienated, first of all. If you look in verse 11, this is immediately obvious. Remember, therefore, that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. He's reminding them that they are uncircumcised. Circumcision was given to Abraham in Genesis 15, meant to be an outward sign of the covenant. It was, it wasn't spiritual. It was simply meant to be a, a physical distinction that separated Jews from Gentiles. And it did. Gentiles were not given that sign. They were not circumcised, and so they were, it was physically obvious that they were not part of God's chosen people. To, to describe someone as uncircumcised was meant to be an insult. David, when he was fighting Goliath in 1 Samuel, referred to him in the camp as, the, as an uncircumcised Philistine. It was, meant to be, it was meant to be an insult. And so they were called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. And Paul makes a point that ultimately it's just a physical sign. It was made in the flesh by hands. But it was a distinction. It was a physical alienation. The more important ones is that the church, the Gentile church, was spiritually alienated. And Paul gives five ways in which this was true. Look in verse twelve. He says, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. That might sound strange to you as you as you contemplate the Jewish Old Testament because it would seem that all of them were separated from Christ to a certain extent. Abraham, Moses, David, Isaiah, all of them were looking forward to Christ. And so they were all separated in that way. But that's really the point Paul is trying to make is that though they didn't have the Messiah, they had a messianic hope. Do you understand? They had they had the hope that a Savior, that a deliverer would, would come and redeem them and restore them. They had had a hopeful future. They had a hopeful eternity in mind because they had a Savior who would come. The Gentiles had no such thing. They were separate from Christ. And so ultimately, the only destiny that they had to look forward to was that of condemnation. And even that, many of them were unaware. They lived their lives hopeless and Many of the philosophies of the day would exemplify this. They would come up with all sorts of things. Some believed that the universe would repeat itself every 3,000 years. Many people believed that the afterlife, you would just sort of wander aimlessly, voiceless, one, one Greek philosopher writes. They were separated from Christ. They had, they had no hope of a Redeemer. Not only that, but Gentiles were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Commonwealth isn't really a word that I use very often. I don't know if any of the rest of you do. But the idea is that they were separate from the nation itself. There There was an actual physical nation. God chose not just Abraham and his descendants, but he said he promised them land. He promised that he would give them land and that they would be a nation, and that conferred certain benefits. God promised to protect them. God promised to win the land for them. God gave that country the law, the prophets. He gave them the sacrificial system and the priesthood and the temple. And they really were a special country that Gentiles had nothing to do with. Uh, I want to read a passage out out of Ezekiel, Ezekiel 15, just to exemplify this special love that God had for the nation of Israel. Because it wasn't anything that they themselves had earned. They did not deserve any kind of special attention from God. But he, despite that, gave it to him. This is kind of a graphic example. It's describing Israel first as a newborn baby and then, and then what, God did, what God did for that baby. This is Ezekiel 16.4. You can just listen along. And as for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling clothes. No eye pitied you to do any of these things that you, out of compassion for you, But you were cast out on the open field, for you were abhorred on the day that you were born. And when I passed by you, I saw you wallowing in your blood, and I said to you in your blood, Live. I said to you in your blood, Live. And to skip down to verse 8, And I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord, and you became mine. And then he goes on to talk about just the clothing that he gave them. He clothed them them with fine clothing. He gave them jewelry. And then in verse 14, And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty. For it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. Israel was a special nation to God. And the Gentiles knew nothing of it. They saw from outside the blessing that Israel received and they didn't participate in it at all. So they were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. We've already referenced this with Abraham, but there there was a covenant that God promised with Abraham and all the other covenants that God made were within this first Abrahamic covenant where God promised them land and people and blessing that all the world would be blessed through them. And he promised ultimately that anyone who believed would have eternal life. These were covenants that he made with Israel that the Gentiles again had no part of. On, on Mount Sinai with, uh, when God was giving the law to Moses, he told them that if they kept these, they would be a treasured possession to God. Finally, the Gentiles are described as having no hope and without God in the world. And these follow logically from what it came before. If you have no messianic hope, if you are not part of God's chosen people, and if you have no promise, no covenant with which to look forward to God's special protection and blessing, what do you have to hope in? Hope always rests, true hope always rests in a true promise. And Gentiles had no such promises. Not only were they hopeless, but they were godless, which would have come as a surprise to Gentiles who had so many pagan altars and deities. The worship of gods was prevailing in their society, and yet they were without the one true God, and that's what truly mattered. And so this is a description of the spiritual alienation that Gentiles felt. As I look at this list, I wonder whether some of you might in some way, feel this same type of alienation. My guess is none of you are thinking about the Commonwealth of Israel or maybe even the covenants of promise, but separated from Christ, having no hope, without God. Some of you might feel exactly like that. Especially when you're alone with your thoughts, the idea that the idea of hopelessness might threaten to strangle the breath from you. And you might, in fact, be spiritually alienated from Christ. You need to ask yourself that question. Are you separate from God? Are those true descriptions of yourself? Because if that is, if you truly are separate from Christ, there's good news. There's good news in the very next verse. Look in verse 13. But now... In Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. There is a way to draw near to God. And that's the first point Paul wants to make. This unity, this peace happens first and foremost between you and God. You can be brought near. You don't need to be separate from Christ and hopeless and godless. But the only way to be brought near to God The only way to have any kind of close, intimate relationship with him is through Christ. You can't earn it. You can't do anything in order to make yourself worthy. It comes by his blood. It comes through his sacrifice. And it comes through faith in him. Do you have that faith? Some of you might express faith, and you you would still feel the same thing. You just feel separate from Christ. You You feel that Just an absence of the Lord within you. I would encourage you with the same verse. Believe in Christ, trust in his sacrifice. It is sufficient to cover your guilt. So that's the first point Paul makes. That's the first description of the church, is that they were previously alienated. That describes all of us as well. But now we're finally going to get to the good news. The good news begins in verse 13, which we just read. But the point is that there can be peace with God and with his people. And we see this, look in the beginning of verse 14. For he himself is our peace. This is right away. And the idea of peace, the way God accomplishes peace, is wholly separate from the way man accomplishes peace. If you think about it, most of the time the pursuit of peace typically involves war for men. You can think about that in history. There's numerous examples. But a couple of anecdotal ones come to mind. I, uh, when I read this, the first thing I thought of was Wyatt Earp. The name of his gun is Peacemaker, which seems strange to me. That is, that is how he pursued peace, was with his firearm. God does not pursue peace that way. That is, not his, that is not his desire. Not only does he not pursue peace that way, but the purpose of peace is wholly different from how men pursue it as well. We're going to see the unbreakable unity of the church in these next verses because of the peace that God brought. And we get a couple of examples at the beginning. For he himself is our peace, verse 14, who has made us both one and broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. I love this word picture, the dividing wall of hostility. It's been broken down. There's a broken wall that no longer separates Jews and Gentiles. It's a great illustration, I think, because when you think about the extent, to, the extent of the animosity between Jews and Gentiles, that there would be a wall broken down between them, it seems like a great metaphor. The kicker is that it's not actually a metaphor. There was a real, physical wall that separated Jews and Gentiles. And of all places, it was in the temple. We have a graphic up on the screen, but the way the temple was laid out is there was the holy place, and that was the main sort of structure. And then outside of the holy place, there was a series of courtyards that would uh, limit who was allowed to go in it. In the holy place, two priests were allowed to go in. uh, uh, One priest was allowed to go in uh, uh, twice a day. And that was it. Just one person, you know, twice a day. That's all who was allowed to go in the holy place. And then outside of that was the Levites' courtyard, and or I'm sorry, the, the priest's courtyard, and only males from the tribe of Levi were allowed to go there. So it was a very specific group, only the priesthood. Outside of that was the Israelites' court, and only Jewish males were allowed to go there. Outside of that was the women's courtyard, and any Jewish person was allowed to go there. It was named that because under that hierarchy, that's as far into the temple that women could go. And though there were differences between all of those different areas in the temple, they were all essentially on the same level. And they were surrounded, in fact, by a a stone wall, which you can see on the screen. But in order to get to where the Gentiles were, you had to go outside of that temple down 14 steps and there was another wall about waist high that surrounded the entire temple complex with, I believe, eight gates in it. And outside of that wall was the court of the Gentiles. That was as close as Gentiles could be to God in the temple. And in fact, during the time of Jesus during, uh, with the temple, they actually had signs posted outside of the gate. And I'm, pre- I'm paraphrasing here. But they said, any foreigner who enters has himself to blame for his ensuing death. That's what they said. This is an intense sign. I've heard po- prosecutors will be, uh, I'm, I've heard uh, trespassers will be prosecuted, but trespassers will be murdered seems a little intense. And I always want to pause, I always want to pause right here and think about just this mindset in the Bible, we don't have offense. We don't have anger like that anymore, I feel like. Maybe it's just because we fear laws. But imagine, imagine the person sitting next to you saying something so awful that you thought to yourself, I just, I have to kill him. It's the only answer. They need to die, and they need to die immediately. And death in the Old Testament was a hands-on thing. It's not like you could shoot them, and shoot them with a gun and be done with it, right? They would Stoning was the, was the preferred method of killing someone, and usually what they would do is they would drag them up a hill, throw them off a cliff, and then throw stones at them until they were dead. That is a terrible thing to do. Right? Imagine them. Imagine the person sitting next to you saying something, grabbing them by the collar, dragging them up to the overpass right here, tossing them onto the 55 freeway, and then throwing rocks at them. Can you, who does that? That is, that is the, hopefully no one, that is the sort of hatred that existed between Jews and Gentiles. God intended that court to be a place for Jewish evangelism where Jews could show love and extend the grace of God to Gentiles. And they used it as an excuse to be isolationist and proud and haughty. And they posted signs saying, don't even think about coming closer. Christ broke down that wall. And that's the picture here: is Imagine a Jew coming out of the temple, descending the steps, looking at a Gentile and saying, come here. No, it's okay, come here. And arm in arm walking into the temple to worship together. That's what Christ accomplished. That kind of unity. Not only did he break down the wall, but Christ in his death broke the law, or more specifically abolished it, you can see in verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. Christ abolished the law, having fulfilled it, Christ fulfilled it, there's no longer any need for us to keep the law, all the commandments and ordinances of the law. Do you know there are 613 commandments in the Torah alone in the first five books of the Bible? 613, they counted them a long time ago. And that is what a Jewish person was expected to keep. They're supposed to know all these laws and know what to do in every given situation so that they wouldn't offend God. Can you imagine being a convert to Judaism? Just suddenly all at once, 613, you got to memorize all these. Can you imagine memorizing Leviticus? That seems, that seems tough. I think we should try that next year in Awana. Just Leviticus all the time. Um, I'm sure the kids would appreciate it. But this is what Christ did away with. There's no longer any law. It's been broken. It's been abolished. And that is what Christ accomplished. And so that no longer needs to be a stumbling block between Jew and Gentile unity. They're one. They're one in Christ. That's what it says in verse 15, that he might create himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace. Peace was the goal. This newness, it's not like a new car that just rolled off the assembly line, where it's new, but there's a bunch of other ones like it. This is new in the sense that it's a new kind of thing. It's got a different quality altogether. So it's not as if Jews, there's Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. There's no more of that. It's just Christians. Everyone is the same. So we've seen the broken wall and the broken law and we've already talked about these but Paul repeats this idea again is that we have peace with God and peace with man. We see that in 16, peace with God and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility. The idea of reconciliation was moving from being an enemy to a friend and that's what Christ accomplished. That we could be friends with God that there can be peace between us and God and that he killed the hostility that's hostility, not just between man and God, but between man and man. It's strange, I think, that the cross, the very thing that killed our Savior, is the exact same tool that God used to create peace between, between us and God and between, and within the church. Go on in verse 17. He came and preached peace to those who were far off and peace to those who were near. That's describing far off as Gentiles, near is, is Jews. That was just common terminology for the day. Christ was indiscriminate in who he preached to. And then look in this in verse 18. For through him we have access in one spirit to the Father. This is the ultimate unity is that together Jews and Gentiles have access to God. In unity. So this Jew who invited his Gentile friend, come in, come past the wall, it's been broken down. They enter the temple together to worship. Now both of them are able to go, not only can the Gentile enter the temple, but the Jew is now able to go further into the temple than he ever was before. He's able, along with his Gentile friend, to walk into the holy place, to have access to God. Something that most priests, they had a lottery for who got to be the priest to, to, go, to go into the holy place. And you only ever got to do it once in your lifetime. And most people never even got chosen. It was an unspeakable blessing to be able to enter the holy place. And now Jew and Gentile light can go in. They have access to God. We're going to move through these last ones quickly. The, uh, the final description of the church That Paul gives is the privileged position of the church. And he gives three examples. They're all excellent. In verse 19, so you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Those are the first two that we get, is that we are citizens with the saints. We're fellow citizens. We're part of God's kingdom. There are no second-class citizens there. We are all equal. We're part of God's kingdom, and so that gives sort of this broad scope where God would be king over us, watching over us, protecting us. But then we get a much smaller, more intimate visualization as well, that we are all united in God's family. We're members of the household of God. We're sons and daughters, and he treats us like that. With the same blessing and honor that he gives his son, he he blesses us and brings us to glory. The last one, and this is really my favorite description of the church in the New Testament, though we're not going to spend as much time on it today. The church is Jews and Gentiles. The church is united as God's temple. Look in verse 20. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So it was built on... The apostles and prophets, the idea is the Old and New Testament. And then Christ is the cornerstone, the key structural piece. It needed to be strong enough that the entire building could rest on top of it. And it needed to be, it needed to be placed perfectly, just so, because the entire building would be oriented to the cornerstone. And that's what Christ is for the church. The entire church is built on top of Christ and is oriented around it. And in twenty-one, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Here's, here's, the, final, here's the final illustration. The Jewish person says the walls have been broken down. Jew and Gentile, we can both enter the temple. They can both walk all the way into the holy place because they have access to God, only to get there and realize that the unique and personal presence of God is no longer above the Ark of the Covenant on the mercy seat. It's where it was previously, but now God dwells within us. God dwells inside of us. That is an unspeakable blessing that the church itself would be a growing temple, getting bigger as men and women are are added to it, as, as people are saved. And so that is the basis of unity In the church. And Paul explains this so that Jews and Gentiles, these people who hated each other more than anyone else, could be reconciled, so that they could worship God together without any problems, without any animosity. And so I want to spend these last few minutes asking you to evaluate the extent to which you contribute to the unity of our church. The church as a whole, certainly, I don't want to ignore the worldwide evangelistic effort, but think about your role in our church and whether or not you feel unified in it, whether or not you contribute to the unity of the church. The most obvious question, and the easiest one, is simply to ask whether or not you know other people in the church. Look around you. Do these people look familiar to you? Have you ever had a conversation with anyone you're sitting by? Do you know them? Do you know anything about them? We have a photo directory. Have you ever just gotten it out and thought, I'm going to memorize the faces and names of people I don't know? Do you know, this might be news to some of you, there is another service. You ever seen these people? Right? (laughs) can't believe it. I just found out this morning. There's another service of people. our, Our church is large, and there might be a day when our church is even larger than it is now. Are you making efforts to be unified with these people? Do you know anyone? And not only that, it's easy with church to treat it like a social club because most of the people here are enjoyable. Well, all of you are enjoyable. Let's say that, right? <laughs> uh, um, uh, and so we like each other. And you show up and you see people that you haven't seen in seven days, and you're like, how are you doing? And it's great, and there's nothing wrong with fellowship. But has the thought ever entered your mind? Have you ever told someone, I am so glad you're here. I can't wait to worship with you. Why don't we sit next to each other? Why don't we worship God together, knowing that our unity in worship brings God more glory? Do you think like that? When you start considering the worthiness of God, the greatness of his perfections, it would seem that the worship that we give him on Sunday morning can't possibly be good enough. He is infinitely holy. And infinitely worthy of our praise. And so when you make friends here, when you meet new people here, that is not an end unto itself. The goal is to worship God together in unity, in spirit, and in truth. You think like that. Spouses, is it a privilege for you to worship God with your husband or wife? Do you love doing it? Where you're like, oh, this is so much better to worship God together, to be united as a family, children, do you think about that with your with your brothers and sisters, right? Is your oh, you know, little brother, sit next to me. We'll worship God together. It'll be great. I love sitting next to you. Um, do any of you do any of you think like that? God is worthy of our pursuit of unity. That's the easy part. There are harder things. There are certain things that harm the church, sort of insidious practices that creep in. And I wonder whether any of you participate in activities that intentionally disunify the church. You complain. Are you a complainer? When you talk about the church, think about for a second how often you talk out loud about the church What percentage of the time is it good? Percentage of the time is it bad? Do you complain about the church? Do you complain about the preaching? Do you complain about the music? Do you complain about the the seats or or, or the, the, the pew bibles or the hymnals? Do you complain about the youth program, the children's program, the curriculum, the other people? Do you complain about the pastor? Do you complain about the elders? Do you complain? Don't do that. Repent of that as quickly as you can. There is is no room for that in a unified church. We need to be seeking as hard as we can to be growing together into a holy temple, to be building each other up, not pursuing complaining. Worse than complaining, well, before I go there, if you must complain, maybe we can give you a rubric. If you must complain, maybe we can start complaining like this. Pastor Mike, there's a problem in our church. I'm sure you're aware of it, as are the elders. And I'll tell you what I'm going to do about this problem. I am going to commit to pray. I'm going to commit to praying for a decade. And after 10 years, if it's still a problem, then I will at that point, start praying about whether or not I should bring this up to you again. Right? Can we start complaining like that? Can we start building up our pastor as much as we possibly can when you complain? Think about this. And this is, this is astounding to me because in, in a lot of ways, church, um, church is different than a regular job, right? Pastor Mike is our pastor. It's his job, but he has been called by God to lead us. Same thing with our elders. They have been called by God. When you think about our elders, do you have warm, fuzzy thoughts? Do you think these are the godliest men in the world? Or are you disappointed with them? Do you complain about them? Do you talk about them? Build up your your leaders. Build up the church. The only thing worse than complaining is complaining in secret, because that's gossip. Do you do that? Do you talk to people and, and, and complain to them secretly and now they're on board with the complaining and you guys form this, this sort of group that is unhappy with the church? Stop it. Repent of that. Don't complain. Don't gossip. And the flip side of this is, have you ever defended the church this is, I think, one of the coolest things ever. This is as close as it gets to the sort of swashbuckling, I think. When you just swoop in and come to the defense of the church. Now, I, Pastor Mike has been, has been called by God to lead our church. I, I don't think we should talk about him that way. Now, our church, God is moving in our church. People are saved and sanctified all the time. I don't think we should talk about our church like that. Do you defend our church? Are you happy to? Do you look for opportunities to build it up? Because that's what God would have of you. God would have unity. And it's it's easy as Christians, it's very easy, to simply try and avoid doing things that are bad. Okay, I'm not going to complain, I'm not going to gossip. I won't do various other things that are bad. But what God, the best thing, if you want to bring God maximum glory, then think about what is best and do that. Some of you might think I'm dreaming Oh, you know. Can you imagine, like, being out on the plaza and telling people, you know, oh, let's go worship God together. It sounds kind of corny. Some of you are thinking, I'm sure. But imagine pursuing that. No matter what, saying, I want to think, I'm going to invent ways to promote unity in the body. You don't got to use my suggestions. Come up with your own. But invent ways, pursue Unity. We've been brought near by the blood of Christ. And if you look in the middle of verse 15, we see it's a purpose clause. Why were we brought near? Why did he break down the wall? Why did he abolish the law? That he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. Part of the cross, built into the cross, is our unity. Built into the cross, one of the purposes of it was so that we would have peace with each other. And if you ignore that, if you choose not to think about that or to even continue in disunity, you shame your Savior. Be careful about being unified and seek as much as you can to build up the church. Let's pray. God, thank you for your graciousness to us. I pray that we would be completely unified in our church the Jews and Gentiles were worse than anything we have here but i pray that i pray that we would strive in every way to do what's best father to bring you much glory knowing that you're worthy of it god help us help us to be unified we can only do it through your spirit god we pray all of this in your name amen